Hi there, my name is Matt Furness and this is The Culture Hack, a video and podcast series that captures experiences and life lessons from those who know culture best. The goal? To help you to understand, design and change your company culture. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Culture Hack. It's Matt Furness here from Click Culture Consulting, and I'm joined today by Frank Brown. Now, Frank is a neurodiverse, neurodiversity coach, educator, and trainer. He's the founder of Conscious Clarity, an organization that supports both neurodivergent people in the workplace and helps organizations to get the most from uh, and the best from neurodivergent talent. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to him today. So welcome, thank Frank. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Always love speaking to you. Really excited. Uh, back from holiday, ready to go. So yeah, really excited awesome. to speak to you today. Sounds good. Thanks for having you on. Thanks for coming on. Sorry. So we'll be we'll be talking today about the intersection between company culture and neurodiversity. But first, tell us a little bit more about your story and your background. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, long story short is that I'd grown up uh, wanting to work in FMCG, so fast moving consumer goods. I was lucky enough to have that career, got my economics degree, uh, worked for a number of companies like uh, Mondelez, which is the parent company to Oreo, Cadbury, Toblerone, a lot of my favorite snacks, uh, worked at Innocent Drinks uh, and the company behind Patax and Blue Dragon um, in sort of a number of different sales and marketing roles. uh, throughout that career and, and really enjoyed it. Um, but equally, I knew sort of growing up uh, that there was something about me that was a little bit different to others and it was really difficult to pinpoint. Um, I'd sort of put it for the majority of my life to the fact that I've got a sort of international background, um, you know, sort of dual nationality, two different languages in the household. And I sort of thought it was a cultural thing. And that led to sort of a couple of struggles at school, university, um, the workplace, you know, sort of high highs and low lows um, during my career. And I thought, you know, something's going on here beyond this uh, cultural element, surely. And uh, at the age of 30, I thought, you know what, I want to look into this. Uh, I was diagnosed with uh, ADHD at 30. Uh, I've skipped over the fact that I was diagnosed with dyspraxia at 20, but I had no idea what I was and did nothing with it. And perhaps that's something we get into. Um, but yeah, this this revelation that I thought, oh, wow, yeah, I'm 30 years old. I've gone all this time without knowing I've got this ADHD diagnosis as well as dyspraxia. Um, I've never thought about the, the fact that these types of things could be impacting me. I'm really interested in exploring it. Um, my diagnosis led directly to my mother's diagnosis in her 60s. Um, she doesn't mind me saying that. Um, but, you know, there, there was this realisation that, wow, between us, we've gone through nearly 100 years of life and not known about it. You know, others in our family have since been diagnosed. And I thought, I want to be part of the solution, not the problem. Uh, you know, I had so many questions and you, you don't necessarily know who to turn to. So uh, that I decided to uh, take a bit of a leap into self-employment, uh, retrained to become a coach in and around neurodiversity. And as you say, I coach individuals, uh, groups and uh, train organizations uh, all around neurodiversity and getting the best out of um, yourselves and your talent. Awesome. And I think I would love to know how, when you received those diagnoses, did you feel like they were surprising or did you then 
did they just help to make sense of lots of things that previously hadn't made sense to you? And in particular, what mm. were those things that now made sense in light of this di- in these diagnoses? Yeah, great question. Um, so I'm sure you and, and your audience, um, will, or many of your audience, will be familiar with the change curve and the sort of reaction to shocks or you know big changes in our life. Um, the simplest version I always sort of refer back to is that we go through four stages. They generally tend to be denial, anger, grief, and acceptance. There are different versions of the, of the model, of course. Um, I mention it because I went straight to acceptance. I think because I had sort of struggled at university where I was putting in more effort than than ever, but sort of failing exams for the first time. Um, you know, I'd had sort of certain periods of my life where I had been doing really well. You know, say I'd had a job in my uh, in my career. I'd done really well in that job, got promoted, moved to a different job and struggled. I thought, well, I haven't got any stupider, I hope. I'm not working any less hard. But surely, you know, there's this sort of environmental factor here or there's some other sort of factor at play. So I I generally went straight to acceptance because I had sort of seen certain elements of my life where things felt disproportionately hard or disproportionately easy. Though I I recognise that for a lot of people, they don't necessarily go straight to acceptance. Sometimes there is an element of denial, you know, this idea that, oh, I can't have it, or, you know, anger, you know, oh my God, this is going to have so many implications, or grief, like, oh my God, this is my new normal. Um, And, you know, that's what coaching can can be there to help with in some cases. Mm. But by and large, um, for a lot of people you speak to, a diagnosis can be quite sort of cathartic. This sort of... Mm reassurance that I'm, I'm, I'm not stupid I've been perhaps just a little bit misunderstood and I haven't known everything there is to know about myself you know a, a common theme uh, I come back to a lot is this idea of we don't know what we don't know uh, and as I say for a big part of, of my life um, and my family's lives um, you know it had been playing a part this sort of neurodiversity uh, element had been playing a part in our whole family without us knowing and so it's quite common when you speak to people uh, that they they talk about life before and after, even though it was already there. It's yeah. more like before I knew, now I know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it, there's this whole debate around whether the labels are even helpful, but it sounds like in your sense, it's really helped you to get a clearer sense of understanding of your own behaviour and the behaviour of people around you. So uh, what I'd love to do is step back and go, what, what do we actually mean by neurodiversity, neurodivergence? I think it's one of those things people broadly get it, but like, let's get specific. What what does it mean? What does neurodiversity mean? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get stuck in. Um, we could do a whole hour on this. We won't. Um, but yeah, in in essence, um, we're all neurodiverse. So let's let's start there. You know, much like. Uh, we accept that nature is uh, diverse. You know, we we consider diversity in other parts of our lives. We don't often think about the fact that our brains can and might and maybe should be different too, right? So we're all neurodiverse in in that sense. Um, the way I often think about it is, uh, if we are baking a cake, I'm going to go on a little baking metaphor here for you, Matt. So ho- uh, good. hopefully it's not too not too <laughs> abstract. But if we're baking a cake, you know, we might need some flour, some butter, some milk, some eggs, some chocolate, whatever it might be. If we consider those uh, the sort of traits that we have as individuals, you might have more of one trait uh, than another. And specifically, you might have more of one trait than I do. Um, and so if we're thinking about this comparison between traits and ingredients. Um, we're all sort of different mixtures of 
uh, ingredients, right? And that is where uh, neurodivergence comes in. This idea that uh, from a medical standpoint, reaching a certain threshold of uh, the medical criteria for those traits will lead to a diagnosis. So if you have loads of one ingredient, it could be, for example, um, I know in my case, I have quite slow processing speeds. So let's just say my cake doesn't have very many eggs in it, right? You might have very high uh, speed processing. Um, similarly, it could be spatial awareness, uh, you know, cognitive uh, thinking, could be working memory, all these types of traits. And in order to be diagnosed with something, you have a sort of medical threshold and you might be above it for certain ingredients, certain traits, and that would lead to a diagnosis. Um, but for the most part, people who are considered neurotypical have a sort of regular mix, shall we say, where nothing is particularly high or low in, uh, in the um, mm. presence. Um, so we talk about spiky profiles as well, uh, which yeah. comes in. That was that was going to be my next question, actually. So, so, but just before we get onto that, so just to summarise my understanding of what you're yeah. saying, then. So, neurodiversity mm. and neurodivergence are different things. Neurodiversity is just the idea that our brains are all different, and every, everybody is neurodiverse, right? Because everyone's brain is different. Neurodivergence is specifically when those differences almost go beyond a particular sort of medically prescribed range of what is sort of typical typical or or yeah typical or common is that right you have done such a better job at explaining that than i tried to with my strange analogy <laughs> i can assure you that it works much better when i present that visually um, but you, <laughs> no. you've described that exactly right and so Good. we tend to talk about um you know we we move away from the idea of normal um there is no such thing as as normal or average we we talk about neurotypical so people who have uh, what would be considered a more standard profile with fewer extremes uh, in those traits. And then we talk about neurodistinct or neurodivergent who would be um, generally diagnosed with condition, could be ADHD, uh, could be dyspraxia, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, um, mm. uh, autism, you know, sometimes referred to as ASD. More commonly now we talk about it as ASC. Um, the D being disorder and we're trying to move people away from talking about these conditions as disorders yes. as there's something yeah. we don't think there's uh, anything fundamentally wrong with having them instead we want to sort of normalize the language of having a condition um you know being pregnant is a condition for example and we want to sort of normalize the language around that so yeah, yeah on one hand you've got uh, neurotypical and then you've got uh, neuro uh, distinct is my preference a lot of people call it neurodivergent um each to their own can I check my understanding with something? Because if I take something like autism sure. or dyspraxia, my understanding mm. is that is almost like a constellation of different aspects, right? So autism might have, I think there's like hypersensitivity to like audiovisual stuff. Then you've got like being hyperlogical, et cetera, right? So you've almost, so it might be that you score almost beyond that medic, that sort of, in the sort of neurodivergent uh, range or beyond that neurodivergent threshold for maybe one of one or two of those, but not of all of them. 
Um, and that's when it starts that to get messy. Exactly that's my understanding. Right. Is that is that that's why I've understood it until this conversation. Is that right, or have I misunderstood that? That's exactly right. Yeah, and okay. and each uh, condition will have different diagnostic thresholds. Um, to make things confusing, sometimes there are different methodologies used as well, but we we won't go there. Um, okay. As you say, each condition will have different sort of um, traits that the assessor will be looking for. Mm. Um, and it's, in, it's incredibly common that if you have one condition that you also have another. Um, so as I say, I, I'm both dyspraxic and I have ADHD. Um, it's really common to see the ADHD autism overlap um, and so many other sort of different combinations thereof as well. Yeah, because I think that's when people sometimes get confused because what they'll do is they'll associate for 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 for, for argument's sake autism with um, you know perhaps like social awkwardness or a lack of eye contact, some of those stereotypical traits. But then they meet someone who says they're autistic because they score high on some of those other you know facets of autism. So, but it might be things that you don't necessarily see as readily, and then people struggle to on like understand it and recognize it as they they are they still have autism it just exhibits itself mm. differently yeah absolutely and and there's a reason why you know in the case of autism specifically it's there's a reason why it's called a spectrum condition which is exactly what you just talked about that it will present differently in different people and people will uh, you know, there's not one way mm. to be autistic. There's not one way to have ADHD. Everyone's experience will be different and everyone's experience mm. will be valid. It's really just a case of um, understanding what it means um, for you as an individual, the impact of that um, on yourself, on others, that sort of thing. And and what you've touched on there is, you know, quite a lot of stereotype. You know, even if we look at Hollywood, mm. you know, mm. um, people tend to think of autism and they go, oh, that's Rain Man. And it's, it's not Rain Man. That was a different condition. Mm. They think mm. of Sheldon from mm. Big Bang Theory. You know, these sort of quite dialed up, quite yes. Hollywood, where sort of elements of the condition are sort of dialed up to suit a, a narrative that isn't necessarily reflective of the everyday person or all that helpful. Um, yeah. So, yeah, as you say, stereotypes can play a really big part in that as well. And, and let's get away from the stereotypes to talk about then the facts mm. of, I think the way you described it before is the spike, a spiky profile, right? So, um, what we yes. mean, what I, I think it sounds like you mean by is almost like sort of those neurodivergent, um, neurodivergent people have more of a spiky profile. So tell, tell, tell us a little bit more about what that spiky profile looks like and what yeah. the sort of the, the pros and draws, drawbacks of, of having a spiky profile might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, great question. So again, if we think about a neurotypical profile, we'll have, um, if you were to take just 100 people, let's say, um, at random, and you were to test them on things like working memory, um, I don't know, emotion regulation, uh, long-term memories, uh, spatial awareness, coordination, whatever your metrics uh, might be. Um, the neurotypical uh, percentage of the population, which is about tw uh, 80 to 75, 75 to 80% of the population is considered neurotypical. Um, they would have relatively consistent scores. So mm -hmm. um, what that means, uh, is I often sort of describe it as a neurotypical person generally finds it quite easy to be like a, a five or six out of 10. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, you can dial things up, uh, you can dial things down, the, the wheels don't fall off. You know, my experience of ADHD, and I can only speak from my experience of ADHD, um, is that you tend to be a nine or a one. 
and you sort of flip between these extremes. And so by being uh, neurodivergent, by being neurodistinct, what it tends to mean is that you have uh, high gaps between your strengths and your weaknesses uh, or your challenge areas. I remember one manager saying to me in, in my old career, Frank, your your you know your output can be amazing. It's it's you know you're when you're on a roll, you're doing fantastic. I just want you to be a bit more consistent. And again, I didn't know about any of this stuff. So now I hear about it, uh, uh, or now I know about my condition and I understand neurodiversity. Mm. Mm. I look back and I think that makes so much sense to me now. This mm. idea that I was working at a nine, the output was really good, but then it, you know there comes a point where maybe I'm not putting the brakes quickly on enough, and so I'm burning out, or you know inevitably your emotions and, and energy levels tire, or whatever it might be. Um, mm. So yeah, that, that's how I tend to think about the spiky profile. A really simple way of thinking about it is it's sort of the opposite of uh, a jack of all trades. It's some, yes. uh, or it's the opposite of someone who is an all-rounder. Now, many ADHDers or many uh, ND individuals will consider themselves all-rounders. So I'm not saying you can't be an all-rounder. What I'm saying is you tend to see more sort of specialized strengths and yes. more sort of identifiable challenge areas. Um, the the language features. you used earlier that I thought was really interesting was mm. you said going through school, things felt disproportionately easy or disproportionately hard. And I imagine that was because of your spiky profile, right? The things that felt disproportionately proportionally easier they're, they're the things you that really hard, you know strong on but the, the things that were disproportionately hard were the things that you were just really weak on um that sort of it sounds like that was what's going on was that is that right i think you've got that spot on and you know when you're growing up you don't always have a huge amount of self-awareness you also don't necessarily have um the maturity to understand what's going on or certainly i didn't and, and you're exactly right. It was sort of learning over time that, uh, oh, hang on. Um, I'm actually surprised that other people can't do this. But then equally, there are other very fundamentally basic things that I can't do. You know, it's sort of a joke uh, within my friends and family. I'll sit down at a table and I'll just spill my water everywhere or knock the yeah. table and, you know, cutlery yeah. goes flying. That's something I, I'm quite, you know, um, mal coordinated in that sense. Again, part of the, the you know, linked to the dyspraxia. Mm. So things that you think, well, Frank, why can't you just sit at a table? Um, I find quite hard, but then mm. there might be other things like problem solving, you know, which I love or creativity that come really naturally. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, you asked about strengths because sometimes, as you say, sometimes you can focus so much on the negatives, you know, mm. even the term atten uh, ADHD, you know, you've got attention deficit, you've got hyperactivity, You've got disorder so just within the name you've got three things that are supposedly wrong with you mm. and that having adhd doesn't mean you have necessarily attention deficit doesn't always mean hyperactivity and as we've touched on in my opinion and in a lot of people's opinion it's not a disorder it's a condition yes. so yeah. um you know we sometimes get bogged down by the drawbacks but actually we mm. we, we don't think about the strengths which can be um, hyper-focus, creativity, innovative thinking, mm. um, problem-solving skills, regardless of the condition, you do yes. see strengths. Um, so it's not just about weaknesses. It's not about deficits. So we st we're starting to talk now about the strengths and the, and the, and the drawbacks of, mm. of being neuro, um, neurodivergent. Um, I think a, there's, a, there's something, um, there's a question on whose responsibility it is to manage that. Is mm. it the individual? Is it the manager to play them to their strengths or is it the organization to adapt the, the systems processes to mm. get the best from from people with 
who are neurodivergent. So my question is, where does responsibility lie? Mm. Can I answer that with a bit of a segue? Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I know this is your show. No, if let's we do take it. a step back from that, and we, we will answer that question. Um, you know, we'd spoken sort of off camera about so why does it matter? Uh, I prepared some, some stats for you. So uh, hopefully this will give some context and then we'll touch on absolutely on responsibility. Why does Great. it matter? So um, Nancy Doyle, an expert in this space, she writes all the books uh, that uh, I have. She uh, and the team at Beck University, they uh, did some research last year. So really recent stuff, over a thousand responses. Um, people saying, you know, 64% of people, 64.7% were worried about stigma from managers, not from their employees or teammates, but from managers. Um, another survey uh, by the Institute of Leadership, uh, I think a couple of years ago, said that 50% of employers wouldn't employ someone with a neurological condition, you know, and if it's because of that, that is illegal, you know, um, that is discrimination. Um, you know, the National Autistic, uh, there was a National Autistic Survey, I think 2016, 77% of autistic adults were, uh, were out of work, but wanted to work. So all of this is why it's important in terms of like understanding it. We've got, as I said, about 20% of the population who isn't necessarily getting the most out of themselves, isn't necessarily um, being given the opportunity to give their best version of themselves. Um, so to answer your question, whose responsibility is it? Um, I absolutely think uh, the employers should be the first sort of owners, should we say, of, of the responsibility. Um, reason being, you know, as an employer, big or small, uh, you generally have a, a bit more resource than the individual. You know, certainly the companies I've, I've worked in and, and I know you've worked in have, have big teams, have uh, big sets of resources. And there's a misconception that uh, understanding neurodiversity or even adjusting, um, however small to neurodiversity has to be expensive, has to be costly. Mm. It really doesn't. And I'm sure we'll get into that too. Um, but, you know, as an employer, you are responsible for sort of all the different touch points of not just your clients, but also your employees. So, mm. um, you know, everything from, the website that you have, the job descriptions that you write, the interview process, all of these things can be adjusted really, really um, small ways and have a, have a really big difference. Um, again, I remember when I did eventually realize and, and got my ADHD diagnosis, um, I mentioned, I said, oh, this sort of makes sense, I guess, because I'm dyspraxic. And they turned around and they said, wait, what? You, you never told us that. And that, that's a really good example of how somewhere along the line mm. in the employment process, I probably ticked the box saying, you know, <laughs> I don't have any conditions, but I just don't think about these things necessarily all the time. Mm. And if you never get asked again, or if you don't have a sort of opportunity to discuss or decide um, or are even asked, then it will just be an empty box that wasn't filled and, and you know, could have could have consequences. In my case, it wasn't so bad, but it's this idea that sometimes, as you said, the individual doesn't know themselves. Sometimes they do know, uh, but they're not sure how or, or um, uh, whether they should disclose. Mm. Um, and so, you know, as an employer, you can do small things like surveys, you know, allowing for self-disclosure, 
um, I've seen companies do really great things with um, affinity groups and particularly having sort of senior sponsors, that sort of thing. Um, and then as employees, um, I think there is a degree of, of ownership, you know, for of an uh, on the employee. And by that, I mean, it's very personal. So some people uh, disclose. I disclosed straight away. As I said, I was in straight to acceptance. Some people, they don't and they, they fear discrimination. You know, I spoke to someone just two days ago who I believe and they believe was was fired from a role um, illegally because they disclosed the condition to HR um, that somehow that information sort of made it across the team and managers and this individual sort of claims that they were bullied as a result of it. So these can be quite sensitive things, um, but at the same time, it doesn't need to be overly complex either. Yes. Okay. So it sounds like first and foremost, the emphasis, the, the responsibility and the emphasis is on the managers, leaders and the organization to create the environment that allows neurodivergent people not only to sort of exist, but actually to be accepted, to be cherished, to, to thrive. Um, because without that, people won't even, people won't even share it. If, if they are aware they won't even share it because they won't feel safe to because of these sort of horror stories that that you mention um mm. i think in terms of what what if you're if you are listening to this and you are neurodiverse in in in, in uh, sorry neurodivergent in in whatever way what would you encourage those people to do especially if you feel like mm -hmm. they're in an environment which may not necessarily accept and cherish their differences? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So um, the first step I often invite people to think about is that what does it mean to me? What does it look like? So I've given you a couple of little anecdotes about small things, maybe that had small impacts, but there were, you know, along the way, there were sort of big things that had big impacts, which I realized as I was going through the process, I was like, ah, I think this was related. Um, so sort of capturing that, you know, what, again, what are the strengths that I think it gives me? What are the challenges that perhaps are linked? Um, what do I think, um, you know, is, is important to my employer? Um, and sort of just capturing that personal element, because as we've said, no one, ex uh, no one goes through the same experience. And we haven't touched on so much, but a really big part is, you know, this sort of intersectionality. We're made of many things and, and we may have many other labels. Um, you know, I might be white, middle-class male, according to some people. And, and, you know, we might have all these other sort of elements and that's why, you know, environment um, can play a really big part as well. Um, but the first thing I'd say is, you know, understand what it means for me um, and try and capture and be able to articulate that even just if it's to yourself out loud mm -hmm. um if you feel comfortable telling hr as as we've touched on they should hold that privately they shouldn't be leaking that mm -hmm. um then you know you could ask your options you could ask if the company has a dni inclusion policy for example uh, mm -hmm. whether there's you know neurodiversity is included in that explicitly or not um you don't necessarily have to uh, disclose your condition but you may just show interest in actually there's an affinity group in my business or um, someone in my team has mentioned they or a friend of theirs has x condition and we're just speaking to them on a sort of more informal basis you know the companies i've seen do this really well in their company culture have a really sort of top-down quite transparent quite human approach to you know i've seen um 
board members stand up and say, you know, this is what it was like to discover that my son was autistic and get him the support that he needed and, and now to watch him thrive. Um, it's a really sort of human uh, approach to breaking down the barriers, as, as you say. Mm. Um, and then the final thing is um, just think about the people that you trust, the people that you can speak to, bounce off of, you know, as, as that sort of famous saying goes, a problem shared is a problem halved. And it could be outside of work. It could be a partner, it could be a friend, it could be a family member. Um, and walk through, you know, actually, this is what I'm worried about. Is that likely? Is that uh, impact going, if it does happen, is it going to be significant? And I'm sort of not here to alarm people, far from it. Um, but sometimes we uh, can build things up in our heads so that they seem worse uh, than they end up being. But also, as we said, we don't know what we don't know. Um, so exploring it, uh, whether it's online, you know, video resources, um, charities, and there are lots of, there's a lot of support out there if we know where to look, but often we don't know that because we haven't been told much about it. And so understandably, it, it can feel daunting. Great. So I, I love those three steps. And let's now go back to um, what what we can, if, if you know somebody around you is neurodivergent what you can do to support them before we do that though just a thought in my mind is diversity mm. in general is not one it's not one thing right so you have you, you talked about intersectionality so you've got uh, diversity of um ethnicity race age gender sexuality etc 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 right uh, thinking patterns values um i imagine when we're talking about spiky profiles it's the same for neurodivergence right so i imagine the ch the exact challenges and the exact strengths in spiky profiles differ from person to person what i'd love to hear if that is the case is what are the common strengths and the common things that p different people struggle with before we then start to talk about how you can then support mm. people with those different types of challenges mm. Yeah, sure. So it will vary by condition and uh, we could spend probably an hour on each. And, and actually, uh, the umbrella term of neurodiversity is sort of constantly flexing as, as, as we sort of collectively as a society understand what falls into it, um, you know, fully or partially. Um, if we take, for example, ADHD and dyspraxia, my conditions that I, I feel most comfortable talking about, um, you might see lack of concentration so that people expect that from ADHD, that sort of attention deficit sometimes as a, as a challenge. But equally, on the flip of that, you know, what we don't talk about enough is how sometimes these are uh, two sides of the same coin. So actually, when I'm really interested to, in something, when I'm on a roll, I have real hyper focus and I can just do something. Um, you know, I always say that on a bad day, I'm probably doing the work of half a person, but on a good day, I'm doing the work of five people. I just feel like a real Trojan, just sort of powering through uh, no matter what's in my way. Um, so, you know, focus is, is one area. Um, energy levels can be something that fluctuates again with regardless of spiky profile. You know, this idea of, um, we haven't touched on it yet, but this, this idea of masking, which is the idea of um, trying to outwardly look like you're doing fine, outwardly keep up with everyone else. Whereas inwardly, no, oh, I'm spending a lot of mental bandwidth just to catch up on people. And I think that's something that um, I had done without realizing this idea that people were like, oh, you know, you're being promoted, things are fine. And I was like, yeah, but this is a struggle the whole time. And therefore, the sort of energy crash that can come with, you know, when you, when you haven't regulated necessarily. 
um, as you say, um, different conditions will have different um, areas, but um, you may find, for example, that communication, you know, I, I remember having um, at times when I'd go to a meeting with my manager and we'd leave with very different interpretations of the same meeting and that inevitably causes a bit of confusion, right? So, um, you know, in terms of how do we navigate that, could be as simple as allocating a, a note taker or having, you know, a voice uh, transcription software like Otter AI. Now, would you make the person with slow processing speeds the note taker for a big meeting? Possibly not. So again, just really minor adjustments of just acknowledging, okay, I know this person's a really, really great creative thinker, but they've told me that note taking and, you know, the handwriting isn't, um, they, they write slowly or they feel uncomfortable writing notes, um, those sorts of things. Um, other adjustments, as we've touched on, there's this sort of misconception that they have to be really expensive, really costly. And I think a lot of employers also fear a sort of slippery slope effect. They're like, you know, if I give one tiny adjustment uh, to one employee, I have to suddenly open the floodgates to every single complaint or query or concern that comes in. That's not true. You know, the adjustments we're talking about, they generally help everyone. You know, this idea that a rising tide lifts all boats is again, another one of my favorite sayings. This idea of if we have a quiet zone in the office, again, I was speaking to a uh, magic circle lawyer, uh, you know, earlier this week, he said, working previously, they had a shared office between uh, themselves and one other person. That was sort of manageable with their ADHD and autism um, prior to COVID. They came back from COVID, suddenly they're in a bullpen, is an open plan office, really, really difficult for them. Um, I speak to another employee, again, they said, I'd really like just a sort of quiet space in the office. Um, I've seen these empty rooms, could I use these empty rooms that they're not even used for meetings? Turns out they, they're reserved for board members, and even though they use sort of 5% of the time, they're not allowed to go in, uh, you know, the other members of the team are not allowed to go in and use these empty rooms, which seems like a bit of a no-brainer. The room's there. It's not costing anymore. Mm. Um, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. we, we've touched on or I've mentioned briefly about things like job descriptions and, um, you know, the onboarding process. Also really important. Um, I think I saw a statistic. Yeah, 53% of employers haven't adapted their recruitment process for neurodiversity. So again, you're, you're potentially losing out on a, on a quarter of the workforce who, as we've identified, can over-index with creativity, can over-index with uh, you know, problem-solving skills or whatever they might be. Yep. Um, and those adjustments can be really simple. You know, yeah. Job descriptions are often really long with a, a need to have list that's 50 lines long, you know, that's really unrealistic. Um, and certain sort of words, buzzwords especially, like say flexible working. What flexible working looks like to me might be different to what flexible working looks like to you. So taking a line or two to explain what that means and just mm. being a little bit clearer um, to avoid any ambiguity, avoid any mm. confusion. As I say, it doesn't cost a lot, it doesn't discriminate, but it helps yeah. an awful lot of people, whether they're neurodivergent or not. Yes. So, so in terms of the common challenges then and the, the strengths, it sounds mm. like some of them are around, you know, en uh, attention, but actually that has the flip side of also hyper-focus at times as a strength, um, often around communication. And you've already mentioned lots of different strategies that both you as a manager can take and the organization can take in order to get the best from um, neurodivergent people. Um, 
let's say you are a manager listening into this and you suspect Mm -hmm. somebody in your team is neurodivergent perhaps they've said that to you or perhaps it's something you perhaps you know something you suspect what do you what do you do about it you know what are the first second third things that you should be doing because I, I'm, I'm getting loads yeah. of great strategies but what's like the first thing you should do then like what's, yeah. what's the order of events yeah that's that's a great question um and in fact, what we've touched on there is my ADHD brain doesn't always work very linearly you know as I say sort of quite um uh, I always think of it as like a shooting star of, of uh, ideas and solutions. And then it often takes me to rein them back. Or in your case, in this case, you to rein me back in. Um, so good. No, and I, I think this is a really, really important point. You know, is it appropriate for a manager who suspects their member of their team to be uh, neurodivergent to sort of tell them that? I, no, I don't think so. Um, but certainly um, to educate themselves, you know, ask, um, again, ask the HR team, you know, do we have any resources on this? I sort of suspect this might be the case, or um, mm. perhaps I've, re- I've had a hint that this is the case. Um, you know, is there anything I can do just privately to educate myself on it? Again, is there a policy? Is there an internal um, advocacy group or affinity group that I could join? Um, a phrase I come to a lot, especially in this sort of circumstance where as a manager, you may not know how to approach it, is approach with curiosity, not judgment. So, you know, um, I was very open in disclosing um, my conditions and what that created was an environment where actually my colleagues were like quite curious and they said, oh, you know, um, thanks for sharing that. I don't really know much about it. Is that okay? If you tell me again what it means for you, that sort of thing. So whether anyone's disclosing it or not, just come with curiosity, not judgment. Again, Mm -hmm. those preconceptions, those... Um, stereotypes of oh well if you've got this then that must mean you are automatically bad at x or Mm, you know mm. my cousin also has it therefore I'm going to sort of tie you with my whatever preconceptions I have of my cousin you know leave those um, judgments leave those preconceptions at the door um, accept each individual for what they are Um, as I said understand if your uh, organization has resources Um, and as I say you know uh, Start to um, signpost where appropriate. You know, we've talked about things like surveys can help people uh, who may want to disclose in a sort of anon- an anonymized way before they're ready to talk about it. Um, as we've talked about, senior leaders coming forward and sharing their experiences um, can have a big impact. And, and, you know, if I'm going through the process, perhaps I'm not ready to tell my manager or HR, but I may know that sales director really well. And I may just ask them quietly, you know, is this something you think I could share or whatever it might be? Um, mm. So curiosity, not judgment is for me, the the shining star here. Okay, great. So I'm just sort of organizing my notes as I'm listening. And I think <laughs> what we've, what I've sort of got is a list of different things that you can do as a manager and you can do as a, as an organization. So I just want to list them out. And what I'd love to know is if mm. I've missed any or if, if, if I've misunderstood anything. Sure. So for, as a manager, it sounds like asking HR what, what already exists or seeking uh, information, showing curiosity rather than um, sort of um, being judgmental. You've also, you also talked about playing to strengths, so going with the spiky profile as opposed to expecting a jack of all trades. Um, and then this idea of a rising tide lifts all boats, so making adjustments that will probably help that individual 
but <laughs> they'll likely benefit the whole team. Then from the organization, I've heard lots of things around um, so, um, surveys to, to make sure that you're understanding your, the, what the needs of people in your workforce, affinity groups for um, neurodivergent individuals, senior leaders sharing sort of vulnerability and sharing their personal stories to make it sort of feel like it's okay to be open about this. And then job descriptions as well, being really precise with the language around job descriptions. They're all the sort of little tips and tricks that I picked up. Are there any that I've misunderstood or any that you would build yeah. on? Yeah. I mean, for a start, you did a great job. Uh, you picked up uh, pretty pretty much everything I think you've talked about. Um, I'll give you an anecdote. I remember going to one uh, interview and this role had been empty for a little while. And so the, the business was quite keen to fill the role. So when it got to my final round interview, uh, you know, I think the first round interview had been one or two people, manager in HR, something like that. And the final round interview had something like six or seven different, you know, different leaders and members of the board, things like that, because everyone was so keen, you know, can we fill this role and, and how is it going to impact my role? And it was quite intimidating for me just coming in and having seven of the most senior people in this uh, business. But the, interestingly, the feedback I got afterwards was, oh, you didn't look in people's eyes very much. I thought, well, there are seven of you. And, uh, you know, that was an example for me of, of how I totally understand in the moment. Everyone wants to meet a potential new guy and, and you know, mm. they're going to help my team and so on. But just thinking about the implication, neurodivergent or not, you know, is seven people in a room with one person and it was a small room too. Is that overwhelming? Mm. So small, small approaches like that. Um, mm. Other things I've, I've sort of written down in advance, um, it could be major large scale things, which doesn't always have to be. But if you are moving office, renovating, whatever it might be, you know, can there be a quiet zone, a quiet corner? Um, a, uh, I would love to see someone invent like a traffic light so, uh, that I could put on my screen, you know, on top of my screen that says like, you know, green for come talk to me, red for don't talk to me, uh, that sort of thing. I'd love someone to invent that um, beyond uh, the, the sort of Zoom or uh, teams, uh, you know, red, amber, green. Um, but small things, you know, if you do know someone has a condition, um, allowing extra breaks, for example, uh, or for them to stand up in a meeting, you know, it could be um, standing desks uh, or, you know, providing noise cancelling headphones, um, those sorts of things. If you're going in a sort of more practical or larger scale change, but it can be small things too. Um, you know, I've seen uh, organisations leading by example where they they have senior leaders and members of the team say in their email signature, um, you know, just so you know, I am dyslexic. So some of my emails may well be, uh, you know, incorrectly spelt, that sort of thing. Mm. Just breaking down the barriers so that people don't feel intimidated, overwhelmed, um, or sort of hushed into silence, shall we say. Um, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, go on. Go ahead. I was just going to say, no, I think I'm like trying a, to... <laughs> go on, you go. Well, no, I'm just looking at what I've written down. And, and I think the email signature one is, is a really good example for me of how these things can be so small. They don't cost any money and mm. they can be quite impactful. Um, yeah, we, we could talk all day about sort of practical steps to take and, and team dynamics and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, what we're trying to do, regardless of our team, regardless of our role, is accept that we have different strengths and uh, different backgrounds you know, we're generally pretty good at accepting different backgrounds and different mm -hmm. skill sets, but we tend not to think about that in our working styles. So in much the same way that maybe you're uh, familiar with insights and things like that, and you want to sort of 
well-balanced team between yellow and, and green and blue and red, whatever it might be. Similar sort of thing here is going, actually, if I know I've got a really creative thinker, but they're slow handwriting, I'm not going to make them the note taker. Um, and think about the dynamics to allow the teammates um, to sort of decide between themselves how they work best together. Do you prefer a phone call? Do you prefer me coming up to you? Um, you know, would you? Another common one, um, really simple, is allowing people to have a meeting-free, you know, portion of their day and say, do you know what? I'm going to allow you to catch up or take a breather or whatever it might be. I think what what I love about these ideas is they're things that would it's the rising tides what is it rising a rising tide lifts all boats all these things that you've said That's they're it. just good leadership and management per se in general right. and so it's not extra it's not necessarily extra things to do it's just if you're doing those things already great and we would encourage you to do more of those things as opposed to it feeling like an extra you know long list of extra things you need to do because you've got a neurodivergent person in your team or whatever it might be uh, so out of all of those um, strategies because we've we've got a long list here of things that you can do as an individual things as a manager and <laughs> things as an organization here's a question that i ask everybody who comes onto the show and it'll probably be the last big question mm-hmm. what's a culture hack that you love so something that takes a little effort but can have a big mm. impact that could be something we've already discussed or it could be something different yeah um for me i'm going to mention it again it's the it's the email signature one it was i only sort of thought about this and, and saw this in practice relatively recently in the last mm. sort of few months um in practice and i thought wow that's okay. uh, really healthy really um warming to see and again um like so often, you know, the sort of good practice, it does sort of trickle down. You see other people mm. doing it. Um, mm. And and that can, as, as we say, that then leads to people approaching with curiosity, not judgment. So mm. for me, um, the sort of soft signals, whatever they look like, whatever you feel comfortable doing, um, those for me are, are a great starting point. And I imagine it's even more powerful if those things come from the senior leader, right? Because or senior leaders, managers, that sends a really powerful message that it's okay to be open about it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, so we could talk about this all day and I'm really conscious of your time and the listener's time. Do you have any final reflections on our conversation before we close, Frank? Uh, only that time has absolutely flown. Uh, we have had fun or certainly I've had fun. So thanks again for having me. Um, as I say, we could talk about specific parts of these in depth for like an hour each. So thanks for giving all of this important stuff, uh, the airtime that, you know, I certainly believe it deserves. Absolutely. Um, hopefully your audience will agree. And my, as I said, my only sort of parting gift is, um, if in doubt, ask, you know, compassionately, um, approach with that curiosity, not judgment. And just remember that not everyone will have their own answers yet. You know, we will go on different journeys in life. We will have a different starting point and a different end point in general. And so just because someone tells you, oh, I've got a diagnosis or I'm, I think I might have this, I'm going through the process, doesn't mean they will necessarily have a checklist of 10 things that yes. they want from you straight away. It yeah. might take some time for them to work it out. Um, and for you as a manager, or as a leader, um, the best thing you can do is listen uh, and, and support um, yeah. and keep that dialogue open. So it's about being curious and being patient, which again, it sounds like that they are just important leadership traits in general, right? Absolutely. And it's just continuing to do that. So thank you so much for sharing your time and experiences today, Frank. I really do appreciate it. My if pleasure, people do want to, I really, really enjoyed it. 
Awesome. And if people do want to contact you, what, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so I deliberately keep a low profile. I'm trying to stay away on TikTok and Instagram and everything for now. But um, best way to find me is, is the website, so consciousclarity.co.uk. Uh, and also on LinkedIn, I go through uh, periods where I post a lot, periods where I, I get uh, sort of overwhelmed by it. But uh, mm. yeah, LinkedIn and the website, uh, consciousclarity.co.uk. Awesome. Thank you so much, Frank. So I think that's all for today. So if you like this episode, please do listen to our other episodes for more first-hand experiences and lessons on all things culture. Otherwise, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Frank, and go well, everybody.